Welcome to the Pints and Pews podcast. I'm Robert, and normally we're just a couple of guys talking the Catholic faith over a pint or two of our favorite craft beers. So why don't you pour yourself a pint and listen in for the next little while as we take the faith seriously, but not necessarily ourselves. And as always, if you want to take part in the conversation or have an idea for the podcast, swing by our Facebook page and drop us a message, or you can email us at pintsandpews at gmail.com. Like I just said, and you've heard time and again over the past season of the Pints and Pews podcast, normally we're just a couple of guys talking the Catholic faith over a pint or two of our favorite craft beers. Usually when I bring out this line that it's normally a couple of guys, it means that Dennis is off sick and recuperating from an illness. Thanks be to God, I can say that that's not the case at this point in time, where we've actually just decided to take a bit of a Christmas season break as we make our way into 2022 and season two of the Pints and Pews podcast. Now over our first season, listeners have come to know that Dennis and I like sharing some of our favorite faith quotes on the podcast. We also usually ask this of our guests, however, we don't always have enough time to fit that segment into each and every episode. So we thought to put these favorite faith quotes of our guests together as a bit of a bonus episode of the Pints and Pews podcast. So please sit back, Pour yourself a pint and enjoy these excerpts from our guests over the past season. A few minutes ago, you were saying that the the quote that drew you in to Fulton Sheen, the quote that got it all started, unless souls are saved, nothing is saved. Fantastic quote. Fantastic quote. One of my favorite Sheen quotes, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure it's a Fulton Sheen quote uh, where he came out and said, you know, hearing the confession of a nun is like being stoned with popcorn. Right. And, and, and to me, just the, the humor that comes out of it again, that, you know, taking the faith seriously, but not necessarily ourselves. But I, I love that quote that you brought up. Unless souls are saved, nothing is saved. Do you have one or two other Fulton Sheen quotes that you'd like to share with us and kind of expound on. Right. Right. All right. Uh, This brings me great consolation. Now it's a, it's a hard pill to swallow this one, but um, I think it, it, it speaks volume. Fulton Sheen wrote, he says, a world capable of putting God on the cross and killing him is capable of doing anything. And, and, and I thought about that, and I, oh, of course, when I look at the six o'clock news, when I look at what's happening in the world, mm-hmm. again, it just gives me great, um, it, it, it comforts me to know that, okay, if the world can crucify God 2,000 years ago, it can do these stupid, stupid, stupid things. And so it just helps me to cope. It really does. You know, a lot of times you, you, you listen to this stuff and you read the articles and you go, you know, you could just go crazy, but somehow just going back to that quote, a world that's capable of crucifying God on the cross and killing God is capable of doing anything. And so um, again, it's just, it sobered me up and it just said, okay, yeah. So when these crazy things happen, ah, you've already been given that battle cry to kind of say, expect this. And um, Mm -hmm. again, Mm -hmm. of course, we 
go to Our Lady. And I think this is where, um, you know, the other quote that I think of that really helps me is just Fulton Sheen's title of that book, The World's First Love. And, and, and I think the world's first love. And, you know, we've made some bad exchanges over time. It's like, I think, uh, yeah, <laughs> we th- I know. So <laughs> I know. So uh, we can do another show just on bad stuff, but the world's first love. And, you know, Fulton Sheen would say, you know, do you have any higher loves? Um, yeah. You have all these lower loves. Yeah, you always love that. But do you have any higher loves? The blessed Virgin Mary, God, the father, the angels, the saints, um, we need some more higher loves. And of course, Fulton Sheen says the first love, because again, he made his own mother. And, and this is what I love, you know, people that might have a bit of a resistance to Mary. Um, Fulton Sheen puts them in their place. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, he uses that uh, one thing he'll say, you know, our Lord spent three hours on the cross, redeeming the world. And he spent, you know, um, three years teaching his apostles, but he spent 30 years with her to be formed by her and uh, to learn from her. And so uh, do the math, do the math, and uh, you'll realize, okay, I should be spending more time with her. Yeah, and, and one, uh, one of the things I love in that book, The World's First Love, when Fulton Sheen is talking about Mary, and especially when he's talking about the Immaculate Conception, and I'll do this when I'm giving retreats too, is when I'm giving a retreat on Mary, I'll ask people, close your eyes and imagine your own mother. And imagine like as a child, when you would lay your head on her breast and you could hear her heartbeat and imagine how beautiful your mother is, you know, inside and out. And just think that, you know, as beautiful as your mom is, she's still not perfect. Now, if you had the opportunity to create your own mother, would you not have made her even more beautiful and more sacred and more loving than she? And you, you've already put her on a pedestal, but wouldn't you even raise her higher? Jesus was able to create his own mother. And how beautiful is that? And how beautiful is our mother Mary? Right. And, and that just floored me from that, that world's first love. Right. Yeah. And, and I think this is the whole thing is um, I think Dr. Scott Hahn kind of um, asked the question. Um, he, he used two ways to shame people, I think. And uh, you know, he'd, he'd of course go to the scriptures and he said, you know, all the scriptures about blessed are you among women and all generations will call me blessed. And he'd hold up the Bible and he says, are you calling God a liar? Are you calling God a liar? Because all generations will call me blessed. Um, You know, so I think it's this whole place. The scriptures really point to Our Lady in such a beautiful way. And we have to go to the scriptures and not pick and choose, you know. And so uh, he did that. But also, too, where he'd say, you know, you do believe that Jesus is God, right? Like mm-hmm. you know, the Trinity. And of course, God created the heavens and the earth, the trees, the flowers, the air. And uh, so he was there before all of this, right? Uh, well, so he was also there before Mary arrived. 
And so he got to create his own mother. And then they usually their mouth is hanging down and going, ah, <laughs> you know. I've so, never thought of it that way. <laughs> I know, I know. So again, Fulton Sheen, and of course, then our um, contemporaries pick up on that and uh, write their own books and use Fulton Sheen as the basis. So uh, it's great to see Dr. Scott Hahn quote uh, Fulton Sheen so many times. And it seems like every everybody's quoting Fulton Sheen. It's kind of like you can't go on social media without somebody quoting Fulton Sheen. And um, well, as the website says, Bishop Sheen today. You know, yes. So the world needs Bishop Sheen today. I cannot remember where it's, it's sort of said in scripture or, or what the sense is, but it's, I'm just going to go with it. Sometimes you have to lose yourself to find yourself. And we, we spend the first, you know, 15, 18 years of our lives being extremely self-obsessed because, well, that's how we have to be. We have to create that sense of self-identity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But then there comes a point where we actively have to decenter ourselves. It's like Bishop Barron says, um, you know, you, you know, your life is not your own. It has to be lived in service somehow to someone to, to something. And I think we have to then move into a new, a different phase in our lives where we decenter ourselves and stop living purely for our own selves so that we can find Christ in somebody else. And then in doing that, then we begin to reinterpret how, you know, the, the lessons that we have learned through service, through love, so that we can then remake ourselves. I sometimes think that there are a lot of lessons that we have to learn as children so that we can unlearn them later on. But you can't sort of give that, that more important lesson to the child. Kind of, for example, the sense of um, uh, learning rules, earning something. Like a, you have to mm -hmm. tell your little, little one, you know, do this and then this good thing will happen. And you then have to well, she's basically working out her faith with fear and trembling. <laughs> she's mm -hmm. learning how to earn the the good reward and then so you have to learn that lesson before you can then mature and realize okay that's kind of how god works but not exactly there's the grace that comes first then then you can start earning but first you have to accept the unconditional unasked for unmeritable um gift of, of grace that comes with with baptism that comes with life in christ but you can't teach that lesson first. It doesn't, the, the, the child has to act out the, the living out of the idea of, you know, learning to merit something within the context of unconditional love so that when they are older, then they can begin to understand, oh, I have to sort of unlearn that lesson or, or have to deepen that lesson now, take it to the next level and understand it in the context of the faith. So, you know, on the lateral level within human society, we still live that out which has its pluses and negatives. But on the vertical scale of the cross, we end up interpreting it differently and then learning how to express that to our loved ones and to our family and then out into our community. Um, so a little bit yeah, of a ramble it, there. No, no. And as you were saying that, it was reminding me of uh, the words of St. Paul, and you might have to help me finish up, but he, you know, St. Paul writes uh, in one of his epistles, I can't tell you which one, but you know, when I was a child, I, I walked as a child and I talked yeah. as a child. And mm -hmm. then as I grew older, I had to learn how to walk as an adult and, and talk as an adult. And there I'm paraphrasing yeah. uh, 
I don't know if you know it offhand. If not, uh, hopefully yeah, a listener I don't know can the exact can first, but yeah, I like that. <laughs> hopefully a listener can can let us know uh, exactly where to find that and in, in the wording of that. Now, over the course of this journey, and you're talking about you know the biblical foundation for the Catholic faith being a, a book of scripture verses of quotes i'm sure in this time through all of your reading and finding out there's probably one or two quotes that have really resonated with you and have stayed with you throughout the journey not only into the church but as you go deeper and deeper into the bark of peter yes there are and ironically i I will say this i talked about my story through liberty studying church history and for those that don't know, there's this um, 18th, there's this 19th century preacher, Baptist preacher named Charles Spurgeon. Okay, in the Baptist world, he's called the Prince of Preachers. He had a quote, and I remember hearing this. I'm like, yeah, that's right. He said, "Anything new in theology is false." And so I was, th- so I was thinking, like, okay, yeah, that's right. And so I thought I was thinking, remember, I was evangelical at the time. So I'm thinking that's right. So papal infallibility is false. The assumption of Mary is false. And then I'm, as I did research on these are all true. I'm like, oh, hold on. The Catholic church is true. Anything new is false. So Charles Spurgeon was right. Just not in the way that he thought. <laughs> I, I, I was just going to say, just because it's new to you. Right. Right. Just, just because it's new to William doesn't mean it's false. Right. And, and yeah, just that notion that, you know, anything that's new because, you know, Charles Spurgeon was the last one to, to say anything that was theologically true just because it's after. Right. But that quote always stuck with me even now. Cause I'm like, that's right. Anything new in theology is false. And that's that, that is correct. Because the deposit of faith has been passed on from Jesus to the apostles, passed down through the centuries, and it's been passed on that way for reasons, because it's true. And in a lot of ways, just as you're saying that, the, the thought came to, to my mind is that it goes even before Christ. Yeah. Right? Because Christ is the, the fulfillment yes. of theology, but that theology was there right. since creation. Exactly. Since, be- since before creation. So no, that that's kind of cool to, to think of it that way, and the fact that it came from a Baptist minister, a, a Baptist theologian, it's almost like putting their foot in their mouth. You know, it's like Charles right. Spurgeon put his foot in his mouth, kind of thing. Right. And the other one, um, I talked about uh, Justin Saint Justin Martyr earlier, and I'm going to read the quote. And this food is called among us the Eucharist of which no one is allowed to partake, but the man who believes that the things which we teach are true, and who has been washed with the washing that is for the remission of sins and unto regeneration, and who is so living as Christ has enjoined. And I chose that one just because that was that first frying pan moment for me about the Eucharist, uh, the Mass, everything that this quote was taken out of just hit me so hard. And it still has this great effect on me. I, just, I smile whenever I read about. It. I read it whenever I talk about it. It's because it's so powerful. The Eucharist is what the Church says it is. 
Jesus says what it is. The apostles said what it is. The earliest Christian says what it is. Here's Justin Martyr in 155 saying the same thing. And it's the same thing that is taught today in the Catholic Church. And that belief in the Eucharist really is key for everything else to fall into place. Well, there's that the expression, you know, Jesus is the capstone. He's the, the cornerstone. He's the, the stone that holds it all together. And he is there really and truly in the Eucharist. And if we don't have that belief in the Eucharist, everything else is going to fall away. And that's why I find it not just sad, but distressing. And it's been a, out for a few years now, but that Pew survey that, you know, of practicing Catholics, Upwards yes. and around, and correct me if I get my number wrong, but upwards around 70% of practicing Catholics do not believe in the real presence. Now, these aren't the fallen away Catholics. These aren't these are the people former. in the pews. These are people that are actually going in to the pews every, then they don't have a pint with them when they go into the pews though. Because it's, and we always say that was one of the original thoughts of the, the, the name for the podcast was pints in the pews. Until Dennis and my our wives said, well, that's condoning drinking at church. You can't do that. So, okay, fair enough. Um, but these are people in the pews that don't even believe in the Eucharist. Right. And you quoted Fulton. You, you talked about Fulton Sheen a little bit ago. So I'll do the same. Fulton Sheen once said that the first belief to go before someone leaves the church is belief of, in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. So this is a big deal. It's not something that should be brushed under the rug. It's something that we need to address like really quickly. And it's something that we can try to teach, but it has to be a lived experience as well. And Mm -hmm. I always come back to it. And I've mentioned, I don't know how many times here on the podcast, that lost sense of the sacred. And because of the way the mass is prayed so often, nowadays that there just isn't that sense of sacredness i teach in a in a catholic high school we have a chapel the blessed sacrament is in the tabernacle in the chapel and i think jesus is the loneliest person in the school Mm. because nobody's visiting people walk by the chapel without even giving it a second glance because we've we've lost that sense of the sacred. And so trying to bring that lived experience back, you can talk about it ad nauseum with people, but until they come to that full, deep understanding, that wisdom. And I don't think that's something that can be taught. You, you need, you need to have that frying pan moment. You need to have that purgatorial pinch. Right. Right. Well, I agree. Yeah. We can have the head knowledge, but unless you actually, we need more than head knowledge. We have to have that soul moving experience, like you said, to cement that what we know intellectually, because our brain doesn't always communicate with our heart, so to speak. Yeah. And a, a couple episodes ago, when I was speaking, I think it's a, a mutual friend of ours, Dominic D'Souza of Smart Catholics. Oh, yes. Yes. And we were talking about how it's all well and good to know about Jesus, but we need to get to know Jesus. Yes. And we all have that particular moment. You know, like for you, you said it's reading this quote from St. Justin Martyr and then holding your twins as you walked up, you know, and my Lord and my God. 
for, for myself, it's been some, some transcendental experiences in adoration, right? And, and just being there in the presence of our Lord and then just knowing that he's there. And, and Dominic shared he was doing you know, some graphic design work and he was doing clip art around Jesus. And all of a sudden he noticed that the, the eyes of the picture of Jesus were staring back at him from his, his screen and were penetrating his soul. Wow. And, and just having all of a sudden that notion of, you know, this isn't just a clip art, it is an actual person. And so we have to come to, to restore that sense of the sacred. And we need to, to restore that knowledge, not just of Christ, but just that knowledge of being with Christ, that, that relationship, so that we can turn that tie so the people in the pews do have that belief in the, the real presence of our Lord in the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agree 100%. So Stephen, with all of this reading that you've done over the years, like you're saying this year, uh, you're already up to about 311 books. Uh, I'm almost at 311 pages, but with, with all of this reading that you do, uh, you must have come across a, a few quotes from these books that have, have stuck with you. Maybe share a couple of quotes that uh, inspire you to continue on in the faith. Well, one of my favorite quotes comes from Mike Aquilina. Um, it was in a book on uh, signs and symbols of the Catholic faith. And he stated, uh, now we can travel with more books stored in our telephones than the ancient Egyptians kept in their vast library at Act. Alexandria. Um, and it's true. I, I have 1700 books in my Kindle app. I have nearly a thousand in both um, Kobo and Google Play because I buy it from whoever's got it cheapest when I'm looking for the ebook. And some aren't available on all platforms. Um, and, and I think at one point we had that conversation somewhere along the line. You prefer to read ebooks or you prefer to have the, you know, whether it's on your Kobo or on your Kindle or a tablet, uh, I like the real thing. I, I used to like the real thing. With my dyslexia, there's a couple of features I like about electronic books. One, I can change the page color. I can change the font 90% of the time. And I can even change font spacing, which as someone with dyslexia, makes it a lot easier to read. Uh, my son has an eye tracking issue and he um, he uses this bar, mm-hmm. which highlights a line at a time, but it also changes the color of that line. I can do that right within the ebook. Okay. Um, so, I, I came across somewhere at one point too, and I, I tried to start using it in some of the, the work I give to the students at school, but there's an actual dyslexia font. There is. It's called, um, on the Kindle app, it's called Bookerly, which is specifically for people that have, uh, it's been, now again, dyslexia is a genre of diseases. So because it works well for me, doesn't mean it's going to work for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, the ebook is easier to read. The second is I also use the adaptive technology um, in that if I'm mowing the lawn or I'm shoveling the driveway um, and prior to the pandemic, I would have a 20 minute walk to the bus stop, an express route bus ride to work and then reverse on the way home. I can listen to a book while walking and then sit on the bus and read, read on my breaks at work and then reverse that on the way home. 
So I can swipe two fingers down and the, the phone will read the book to me. Um, and then when I'm sitting, I can start resume reading where it's at. Yeah. And again, coming back to your quote, I think it would amaze most people, not just of the ancient world. We just need to go back a generation two at most, where all of a sudden the technology that we hold in our pockets, and like you're saying that uh, from the quote that we can get more books onto our phone in our pocket than the ancient Egyptians had in their, their vast library that, you know, kind of in any of these, these huge reference libraries, and we have that access to the great power of the wisdom that are, are held in these tomes. Yeah. So it's, you know, yeah. the, the only time I read a physical book these days is, is if it's a volume that's not available electronically and it's still in print. If it's out of print, I'll actually scan it and make myself an ebook copy. Okay. okay. Um, my second quote, C.S. Lewis, no cup of tea is big enough nor book long enough for me to be satisfied. Um, I love a big book and I love a big, a big pint, a big cup of tea or a big mug of coffee. It's, it's one of those, those small pleasures in life, isn't it? Just to sit there. Uh, I'd like to say on a dunkel kind of day to sit there on a, kind of a, a cold November afternoon and either you have your dunkel or your tea or your coffee and you just take that time with the book. And I always say that's the best sleep ever is when there's that smooth jazz going in the background. I've got my book and I've got my drink. And then just as I'm reading slowly, the book ends up on my chest and my, along with my chin. And I just doze off for a little bit. And those I find are the most peaceful sleeps ever. <laughs> right. And yeah, so that we can't be satisfied because it, it truly is a place of joy. And for me, I, the third quote would be St. Erasmus. When I get a little money, I buy books. If there's any left over, I buy food or clothes. I include that one tongue-in-cheek these days, but there were times in the past where I spent money on books that should have gone to food. When I was a student at Queens, like if new books came out, I had to buy it the day that came out. And I'd go and pick up three books at the, at the bookstore and a, like a 10-pound bag of rice and eat nothing but rice till the next payday. Um, I'm not that bad anymore, particularly as a father and as a husband. I know that I, I can't. And as a reviewer, I do get um, many of the books I read from the publishers or authors these days. Um, I couldn't afford to read as widely as I do and as much as I do um, without those review copies. Oh, but you are providing a service, right? So you, you are paying for, for the book just through, through a service of, of reviewing them as opposed to sending the, the cash. And yeah, I get it. When I was living in Brussels too, uh, I think I lived for a year on OXO cubes, you know, a couple strands of spaghetti and maybe one wiener cut up in the, in the OXO, in the, the broth that I had made yeah. because you're spending it on a good book or a journal or a nice beer. Yeah, it's setting those priorities. But as you said, too, as we grow older and wiser and discern uh, those vocations that God has called us to as husband and father, we find other ways to, to feed the reading habit as well. Yeah. And for example, for me, the books you see behind me, other than a selection of prayer books, the one book, one physical book I'm reading my bedside table, those are all the books I own. When I got married, I had eight, 10 foot or eight, six foot high shelves 
full and across the top and a whole shelf in a six foot long closet. Um, part of it is, is, is where you're at in life. Like I'm at the point where I don't want 50 boxes of books when I move. Yeah. When, when we moved four years ago, because uh, I had been reviewing fiction, I'd been reviewing uh, small Canadian press fiction. And again, I was going through four or five, I was going maybe a book a week, wasn't a book a day, but a book a week. And it came time to move. And it's like, yeah, I don't want to move those. Well, I did end up moving. I moved them to Value Village and Goodwill and the Salvation Army, but they didn't come with us. My theology books, those stayed. And, and uh, yeah, no, I would I would turn the the screen to show you all of that, but then you would see the disaster of the basement. So we'll we'll just leave it at, at that. But I don't know, like you say, there's a couple of bookshelves and they're lying on their side and they're on top of each other. But it's I love books. I love books. I'm going to give one more plug and you can use it at some point or not. Um, there's a fantastic new series. Um, I want to make sure I get the name. Uh, it's called Reclaiming Catholic History. Mike Aquilina is actually the general editor. Okay. Uh, there's, there's going to be a total of seven volumes. So four are out. So the early church, the church in the Roman era, the Middle Ages and the modern era are out. Another one comes out this year at Christmas. Uh, but for, whether for you personally or if it makes it in, um, absolutely fantastic uh, series. Uh, would have loved them when I was a student um, and absolutely love them right now. Yeah, I'm going to be in so much trouble at the end of this podcast because I'm already looking check here, check here, check here, check here. So it's a, a, absolutely fantastic. Kind of one last thing I wanted to, to pick your brains, the, the three of you, and it, no, it's not a liturgy question. I, there, there were a million and one that I did want to ask, but You're not I'll, supposed to hold hands during the Our Father. Okay, got that out of the way. Okay, actually, that wasn't it because uh, I, I refused. <laughs> I come to my church and tell tell the priest for that. All right, <laughs> but somewhere along the line, all three of you again coming from very different directions to the liturgy, guys. One quote each on the liturgy. So one, one, it could be a saintly quote. It could be a quote from your reading. Uh, it, it could be a quote from your own writings because we wouldn't know the difference, mm. right? You miss 100% of the shots you don't take. No, okay, but that's, that's Wayne Gretzky. No, I'm just kidding. I thought Jesus said that. Yeah. <laughs> I'll start. I actually have two. And, and you know, I actually have the, this first, it's a Bible verse. I had this verse note inscribed in my wife's engagement ring because it was a big part of um, my proposal pitch to, for her to bury me. <laughs> but um, my, my scripture quote is John 10, 10. He came so that we might have life, uh, not just have life, but have it to the full. And I think that is an incredibly important statement. And I think it applies to liturgy because, you know, we're called not just to be people that might be good enough to be in heaven possibly someday. No, we are called to the fullness of Christ, which is principally offered in the mass and through the sacraments, principally. That doesn't mean that I can't encounter Christ through the devotions or prayer, personal prayer, you know, acts of piety or, you know, acts of service. 
but principally and fully through the liturgy. So that's that's my first one. And then the second one comes from the motto at the Liturgical Institute, Instaurare Omnia Christa, to restore all things in Christ, which was the motto for Pope Pius X. Since working at the Liturgical Institute, it has given me uh, what I call mystagogles, and now I can see things uh, sacramentally that I couldn't see before. And quite literally, all things, everything, time, creation, uh, abstract elements, but ourselves can be Christified, sanctified, transfigured. And so really what we're trying to do at the Liturgical Institute, first things first, sacramentally, let's restore things. And then let's that, let that flow out into everything else that we do, that everything is oriented and pointing towards Christ. That's the goal. Am I good at that? No, but I'm getting better. But the goal always has to be working towards that. Now, that, that notion of having life to the full and really life to the full is through Christ. And so you're, you're talking about that, that mystagogical then relationship of restoring all things in Christ so that we can have that, that life to the full. Now, as Jesse was sharing his quote there, I was watching uh, one liturgy guy was cheating and going to his bookshelf and the other liturgy guy looked like he was looking something up on his phone. Right. Oh, I'm <laughs> glad they weren't. I, I'm glad they weren't like, no, that's terrible. That's not right. So who well, wants to go next? The, the guy with his phone or the guy with his book? Yeah. Uh, one of my favorites is, uh, let's, uh, is um, uh, it's a maxim from St. Leo the Great that what was visible in our Savior has passed over into his sacraments. What was visible in our Savior has passed over into his mysteries or his sacraments. I think that's one of the best ones uh, because it, it helps people to realize that what the Mass is and the sacraments are and the liturgy is isn't, uh, you know, some you know, like Dennis would say, grace vitamins or, you know, uh, divine dewdrop or so it's, it's, it's a person that's kind of in there kind of behind the scenes, kind of behind the curtain is Christ. And that's, what's the, the reality and the substance and the person behind, beneath, around all of these sacramental things, these smells and bells and whatnot is an encounter with a person. And I think that line from St. Leo really helps to, to make that. So what was visible in our savior is passed over into his sacraments. And I like that too, because how often do we just see the, the visible sign of the sacrament? We don't get past the bread. We don't get past the wine. We don't get past the, the, the chrism oil. And so, yeah, having that, that reminder that it truly is a person, it truly is the person of Jesus Christ. And I, my last parish was St. Leo, the great parish. And I mm -hmm. never heard that. I was there for 20 years, never heard that quote. So I should maybe mm -hmm. go back and put something on the, I, I don't want to say I want to nail something to the front door of the church. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the catechism invokes that very line and, uh, you know, trying to make the point that these are sacraments of Christ and they rely upon him. So yeah, he's, he's a giant in, uh, you know, in the history of the church, but in sacramental and liturgical theology too. And then DMAC, last but not least with, with, with the quotes, we seem to have gone again in reverse chronological order here. Well, you saw me going over to take over to my desk a pile of final exams I just gave this week for my students teaching a class on the liturgical movement, liturgical theology of the 20th century. And I asked them to explain a quote, which I'm going to use as my quote from paragraph seven of Sacrosanctum Concilium that says, the liturgy is considered as an exercise of the priestly office of Jesus Christ in which the sanctification of man 
is manifested by signs perceptible to the senses, and that it's performed by the mystical body of Christ by the head and his members. So there's a lot in there, right? But we often think of mass as I have to do this thing once a week or it's a moral sin. Maybe I'll get communion if I'm in the state of grace, and then I'll get like a shot in the arm spiritually, which, which is all kind of true, right? But when you see what liturgy is, the exercise of the priestly office of Christ, that's Christ at the right hand of the Father, and he's offering and pleading for us. He's offering his supreme sacrifice, and that's how we're sanctified. Christ offers us to the Father, and as members of his body, we are Christ. We're baptized into his body, and so Christ takes humanity into the Trinity, which is a crazy idea, and then he takes our humanity into the Trinity so that we can participate. If you think of like the Trinity as this electric uh, generator, and we're separated from that generator, and so our life is low. But we enter into the heart of this, and suddenly the you know the wattage goes up, the amps go up, and so um, how do we know this? That so we can't be carried off to visions of Christ at the right hand of the Father very easily. So we just make them noble to the senses through signs. The priest is the head of the body. The members of the people are the members of the body. The priest is dressed in the garments of salvation. You know, a, a chasuble is not just that tablecloth with a hole in it that the rules make us wear, make the priest wear, right? It's what would it look like to see Christ in his heavenly uh, radiant robes? And that this is celebrated by the head and the members both. So when Jesse's talking about putting your heart on the altar, so what he's talking about, you offer yourself with Christ to put, have him put it on the altar, to give it to God the Father, to die to self, to be reborn as the new and improved self. And so that liturgy is a bit like uh, an exercise regimen. It's a bit like, um, um, I don't know, something that you get better and better every time. Physical therapy is a good image, right? If you don't put in the effort, you can't get stronger. Except we're talking at the supernatural plane. We join our prayers to Christ. We join ourselves to Christ's offering so that we can rise with Christ and put ourselves back together. Jess is talking about the world falling apart, right? Well, how do you get the world to fall apart? You think about a body before it dies. It loses its life force, and then the cells start to fall apart. And uh, if we can gain that divine life force, pull us together individually, pull us together in groups and cities and nations, and you could see no more war, right? No more in not taking care of the poor, no more indifference uh, to the sick. And so Pope Benedict's vision and Pope Francis' vision, they can work together. And the liturgy is, is the glue that holds the whole thing together because the action of Christ that builds up the body of the church. And that's why it's so important to have a podcast out there like the liturgy guys, because so many of us are dying. Now, I don't want to say dying liturgically, but we're, uh, we're, we're losing that liturgical muscle because we're not working it. We're not practicing it. Uh, you, you mentioned about the chasuble. It's not, not the tablecloth that the priest is, is asked to put on. I actually heard a priest explain the, the chasuble that, uh, it was like a rain poncho that they would wear when they were saying uh, mass down in the catacombs. And yeah, there's a lot of um, low Christology in, in the catacombs. Oh, <laughs> uh, it's under it's, it's it's underground, and there's mm-hmm. the, the the water that drips from right. the. And it may be true that the chasuble takes its shape from the thing called the casula, which was this kind of traveling garment worn by upper class Romans. 
But if you look at the Temple of Solomon, the Tabernacle of Moses, there are also a whole series of vestments that are prescribed by God. And they're made of four different fabrics that stand for the four elements of creation. So the priest puts on all of creation the way Christ did all of creation on himself and takes it back to the Father. And then you see what the sacramental biblical vision does. The chasuble becomes that thing we have to wear, because the book says, into a sacrament of Christ seeing all creation on himself and bringing it back mm. to the Father. And that's much more exciting for yeah. people and much more interesting and also looks nicer if you get it right, then you make a beautiful thing instead of a ho-hum thing. You know, to go back to Willy Wonka, imagine if you opened the door to the chocolate factory and it was a beige drywall room with no chocolate river. <laughs> he was not singing. No his Oompa song. Loompas. No Oompa Loompas, no candy. Just like, oh yeah, you should do this every week or else you go to hell. Well, who wants to buy that, you know? Welcome people into the delight of beautiful music, beautiful vestments, beautiful architecture, beautiful preaching, the word of God proclaimed, music that sounds like the angels and saints singing around the throne of God. And then people may not even know what they're hearing, but they're like, wow, something good is going on here. I hope you enjoyed revisiting the conversations we had with our great guests this past season here on the Pines and Pews podcast, along with learning some of their favorite faith quotes. Dennis and I are definitely looking forward to more of the same in season two of the Pines and Pews podcast. Now, just before we wrap up here today, perhaps there's just one small favor I could ask of you, our listeners. If you could take a quick moment and a couple of clicks to Follow the Pines and Pews podcast on your favorite platform and give us a review there. And while you're at it, like us on Facebook, drop us a line there, or send us an email at pinesandpews at gmail.com. We always enjoy hearing from our listeners. God willing, Dennis and I will be chatting again soon with another fantastic guest. But until then, I ask that you remember the wise words of G.K. Chesterton. In Catholicism, the pint, the pipe, and the cross can all fit together. God bless.